I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today our guest is Saeed Mazumdar, an M&A partner at Gibson Dunn in New York. Saeed, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. Very happy to be here. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about several things. First of all, a little bit about your background, and then you started practicing in 2008 which was a very challenging time for deal-making that would persist for several years thereafter. So we'll talk a little bit about that and then what you learned from those experiences that you're using now in a period where deal-making is not that challenging, but still more challenging than it's been for the past several years. And then finally, a little bit about what you do to decompress from work. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to practice law. Happy to do so. I actually grew up in Canada, in Vancouver, and really did not know anything about this whole big law universe. I went to college in Canada and Montreal at McGill, and then just knew I wanted to move to the US. I'd always wanted to move to the States. It was the place of lots of opportunity in my imagination and quite frankly, in reality. And I had sort of thought about law school. I didn't really know a lot about it, but it seemed like a good path for a young individual finishing undergrad with no theory or thought about actually going to the real working world. That sounded far too adult for me. I wasn't sure how to do that. So I graduated from college. I took the LSAT and the GRE and did well enough to get into Michigan and went there. And I remember being like amazed about the whole law school in the US big law experience. I had heard this fairy tale a few years prior when I was in college. I was with um, some of my high school girlfriends. We were in LA on a vacation, but we had no money. So we're staying with my friend's aunt in the valley. And my friend's aunt was telling us about how her older son was at law school at UCLA and had a job for the summer that was where he was working at this firm and doing all these things. And that even though he hadn't even graduated from law school yet, that firm had already offered him a job for full-time employment when he was going to graduate and was going to pay him $125,000. And I just remember at that time, like 19 years old, circa 2002 or whatever year it was, being like, that's not possible. I'm like, that's insane. Like, this makes no sense. How could somebody pay someone six figures when they don't even have a degree? Turns out not a fairy tale, actually true. Went to Michigan and lo and behold, same story. All the counselors are like, yes, you get this job in your second year. And so long as you do reasonably well, they're going to offer you a job. And in fact, they pay you $160,000 when you graduate since salaries have sort of increased in the interim there. And it felt too good to be true. I certainly assumed there was some sort of a catch, but that put me on the path through undergrad law school, and then did the summer associate gig like most folks do as a second year at Gibson Dunn and started there when I graduated in 2008. And so when you started in the fall of 2008, obviously, it was a pretty bleak time in the financial markets. And generally, what was that like as a young associate? And what did you learn working on deals, especially those first couple of years of your career, which were incredibly, incredibly challenging for corporate law. It was super interesting because we 
graduating students, sort of incoming class, really did not know much of anything. And we were just reading the news real time. And each day, these different stories were coming out about how the world was coming to an end. And certainly, we were all fixated on above the law at that time, which was like our greatest source of information about what was happening in law firms. And in fact, it was a time when firms were starting to contract. And most of us were just afraid about not being able to keep our jobs, right? The concern that the firm was either going to defer your start date or lay you off or do something like that. And so luckily, none of those things happened, even though I remember I was taking a bar trip with my brother in Eastern Europe and it, like Lehman was collapsing and all the things were happening. We were watching these stories on CNN of all these bankers with their boxes walking out of their offices looking dejected. But nevertheless, I went, came back to New York and started on October 6th, I remember, 2008 at the firm. And you're right, David, it was extremely quiet, right? The halls were quiet, but I didn't have a sense of what it had been before, right? The summer before was very different, but as a summer associate, you don't really get a sense of what's going on in the market and the deals and so on and so forth. So while the capital markets were completely dead and the M&A market was extremely quiet, there was no basis for comparison. So I don't really understand how bad things were. And I just did whatever I was asked to do. You know, as a first year associate, we have a free market system and you can work on whatever it is that you want or people are asking you to do. And what I think is interesting and was helpful for me was that at that time, I just took the opportunity to do a variety of different deals that weren't necessarily your traditional bread and butter, mid-market PE, M&A deals. They were different things. I certainly remember as a first-year associate, I worked on a debtor side bankruptcy case from start to finish. I worked on tons of financing because there was always debt being refinanced for those companies that were challenged, for those that were doing okay. There was really not a lot of capital markets. And I did the M&A that came in, which wasn't a ton, but there were certainly some. And some of it was structured in an interesting way. And those first couple of years were a little bit more, I would say, a different type and pace of transaction than what I came to realize was the norm after a couple of years. But super interesting, right? It helps you build up that versatility of figuring out that it doesn't all have to be one way. And, you know, I tell this to junior associates all the time that you don't have to become an expert in a particular deal type as a first year. It's more important just to get some reps, the cadence of how these transactions work and the counterparties and why we're doing things and learning how to be proactive. But what I like about it is in a sense, I don't think it set me back in any way. And it sort of helped enable me for different climates and environments that were certainly going to come, right? Like, I don't believe right now where we sit in 2022, that this is the same as what was happening in 2008 and 2009. Personally, although I'm not a fortune teller, my sense and my hope is that this downturn won't be quite as pronounced or I hope painful for individuals as that was. But there are parallels, of course, right? Whenever the market's going in a particular direction, when the capital markets are locked up as they were at that time, when interest rates are going up, all those factors are similar and have similar impacts on deal making in a sense. So it was a great learning experience for me. And I was certainly lucky that the firm was doing well enough. I didn't have any issues. We didn't have any layoffs and got to work on a variety of different things and get that experience one way or another. 
Were there particular transactions, again, not necessarily M&A, but perhaps capital markets, you mentioned bankruptcy, that were formative for you or that made an especially strong impression? Was it more the range of transactions that you were able to work on that in a hot M&A market, you wouldn't have had the opportunity to work on because you would have been doing m and It's a great question. I would say the way I sort of felt about it was certainly working on a bankruptcy and working on financing deals was helpful because you just learn enough to become dangerous, right? Like you get the questions, you figure out the watchouts, and that helps in your M&A practice, makes you a little bit more well-rounded. Some of the like funner, more interesting or random things that I worked on. I remember as a first year, there weren't a ton of just regular M&A deals, but we took on as a pro bono client, the Girl Scouts of America. And they had this huge bureaucracy where every single county was its own separate entity. And in a means of consolidating and eliminating some of their cost structure, we ended up doing mergers of the various Girl Scouts entities in the state of New York, like different counties merging from five counties into one, which was funny because it's completely an M&A deal. And of course, as a first year, I get to run this pro bono matter myself. And it's not that the concepts are all that different, right? You still learn something. You learn something about mergers and reading the code and understanding and how you would draft agreements and all that stuff. So that was a fun one. And we sort of had other smaller deals that were going on throughout that whole period. And then in 2009, 2010, what I worked on for a ton of that year was the acquisition of Cadbury by Kraft, which was a huge deal, of course, and in a sense, traditional, very big ticket M&A, but a deal that itself had a ton of different aspects and interesting facets to it, given, of course, the cross-border nature, given the fact that Cadbury was sort of seen as this crown jewel in the UK. And there was so much interest. And at the time that Kraft originally made its outreach, that was a hostile deal. And so we had tried to sort of navigate the UK takeover code and come up with a way to do a hostile takeover of Cadbury, which was going to be difficult no matter what. Eventually, it ended up becoming a friendly deal. And we sort of restructured at the end and got it all done. But throughout that period, even while I was working on a variety of matters, I knew I wanted to do M&A. So I sort of gravitated towards those assignments, even if they were non-traditional ones. And then when, of course, Craft Cabaret came along, I think that just sort of sealed it for me as the thing I certainly wanted to spend all of my time doing. And then by the time Craft Cadbury was finished, we were beginning to return to a somewhat more normal M&A market. So presumably then you really could focus on M&A. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was sort of like it started in 08. I remember the very first deal I did, which did get done. It was like in a, a private acquisition of a, an Israeli medical device company in 2008 that we closed in December 2008. And I, I fully remember that. Of course, I think most people will remember their very first closing of an M&A deal. But then, you know, throughout most of 2009, it was just a lot of different things. And when Kraft Cadbury was wrapping, it was in early 2010. And you're totally right. By that time, things were starting to pick up and looking a little bit different. And so my practice started to shift and narrow and become much more just M&A slash corporate counseling focus. Like even today, my practice is kind of broad in the sense of the types of things I work on, but I shed and didn't try to become more of an expert in things that were more like a financing. I didn't work on any funds, transactions or capital markets after that. 
And what parallels do you see between today's environment and the environment you saw in the first two or three years of your career in terms of doing M&A and the challenges in getting a transaction signed up and ultimately closed? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say the main one is using more creative structures to finance a transaction. For the past several years, we've been operating in this extremely low interest rate environment where there was tons of financing available, whether it was from banks or the bond market or non-traditional lenders or direct lenders. It was sort of all there. And of course, we'd seen tons of deals being done throughout this period that were the traditional LBO model, a little bit of equity in it, debt behind it, all of that. In 2008, 2009, of course, there was much less of that. And today, there is much less of that. Now, I'm not sure that we're going to have a locked up financing market for a long period. But as we know, the equity and debt capital markets have been fairly dead to closed for the past several months and are research starting to open. I know there was an IPO announced last week. We'll see a few others. And I think the thinking is by sort of Q1, Q2 of next year, both the equity and debt capital markets will be a bit looser. But where we sit today, if you look at sort of the deals that are getting done, especially in the LBO market, they're all being financed in a different way, the same way that I saw a lot of in 2008, 2009. And you start to go through the metrics of what are the ways you come up with the cash to get a deal done in order to get a seller to the ultimate enterprise value that it's looking for. And I do think it's interesting that just recently, Blackstone announced its acquisition of Emerson's climate technologies business. And I feel like that's such an interesting deal in the sense that it has all the elements there. It's a carve out for Emerson and they were selling one of their business units and the enterprise value is 14 billion. But when you look at how all the cash came together, there's one, an element of seller financing, which is fun. The seller put up 2.25 billion, I think of a seller note. There's seller retaining an equity stake. So you have the rollover, right? The traditional role, which you could see in a private equity to a private equity deal, of course, but you can also see in the context like this, where this is strategic selling and they're keeping 45% of the equity of the company. There is a lot of equity in the deal, 4.4 billion total, of which I think Blackstone put up about half and, and their co-investors put up the other half. And then there is debt. There's, you know, five and a half billion and, and people have been for the past months, it's felt as though there wasn't like the syndicated debt market wasn't really available and five and a half billion of debt is a ton. And if you look at how Blackstone was understood to have put it together, it was essentially that they acted as a bank, but went out to direct lenders and put together their own sort of syndicate of direct lenders to create the debt financing stack they needed for this deal. So super interesting and not dissimilar from what we've been seeing for the past couple of months in this market in terms of the deals that have been getting done. It's just on a bigger scale, right? To get to a 14 billion enterprise value, you have to do it at a larger scale. And we haven't seen a ton of that in the past couple of months. So Vista did its buyout of No Before, which was about four and a half billion. But even there, there was equity rollover. There was significant equity, less from the direct lending markets. Veritas bought a company last week on Friday. Same thing. A lot of equity, direct lenders coming up with the debt. So these deals have been happening in the market. They've just been at a bit of a smaller scale. And I think this is the, the buyers, particularly the private equity buyers, who are the ones who most need that type of financing coming up with different and interesting structures in order to get their deals done. Talk a little bit about 
the rise of the direct lenders who 10 years ago were part of the middle market, maybe even to some extent the lower middle market, and are now a significant presence in multi-billion dollar deals. Right. It's interesting because we've sort of seen it grow up. And exactly as you said, it started out where it might have been smaller sponsors doing smaller mid-market deals. And they go to these direct lenders who are interested in getting involved in the capital structure of some of these companies and having lots of capital to deploy, right? Because there's tons of funds out there doing all kinds of things, whether they're credit funds or other funds, and but not necessarily wanting to underwrite acquisition. So coming up with acquisition financing and possibly taking an equity kicker and having a little piece of the upside. And that was the type of thing we would see. And there was a view that there was a constraint on what the size of a deal could be that went to the direct lending market. And the theory was you get to a certain enterprise value, some you know, more than 1 billion or 2 billion or come up with the number and you'd have to go to the syndicated debt market or go to the traditional lenders in order to get your deal financed. And I think exactly to your point, we've just been seeing that there is an expansion on what the direct lenders can and are willing to do. And of course, I think there's limits on that, right? I don't think if you are in this direct lending market, when you're keeping all of this exposure on your own balance sheet, there's going to be a limit to how much risk you're willing to take on in a particular investment, which would be true in any case, right? Any sort of investor is going to have to think about how much risk can I take on my balance sheet for a particular investment. But there have been ways we've found of one, there was a time when the direct lenders were themselves writing bigger checks. And the other piece of it is just basically creating clubs of the direct lenders instead of just going to one to underwrite your whole deal and be the debt for this transaction. You can go out to several and create a sort of a syndicate to get to larger deal sizes. And if they're willing to do it efficiently on good terms, at the market, more nimble, help get deals done. I think there's really no limit to how much we can see the direct lenders doing. By no limit, of course, there is a limit. But in terms of the types of deals they can get involved in and the size of the direct lending market in terms of the number of players, I certainly think we're seeing expanding. In that regard, one of the noteworthy aspects of the Emerson transaction is that it is a classic industrial buyout, which was a the kind of buyout where banks had still been the predominant providers of debt. So in a sense, it represents a move by the direct lenders from tech and healthcare buyouts where they had played in multi-billion dollar deals to a sector where the banks had maintained their traditional strength. I think that's exactly right. I think it just shows you that in this environment where the banks are sort of a little gun shy, right, to get out there. And part of that is from the reason that they're purported or rumored to have taken some losses in connection with some recent deals where they've had to fund their bridges, which historically for the past several years, we really have not seen and not been able to syndicate that debt that they thought they would where it's an opportunity for other lenders to sort of get in on an area that may not have been their traditional strength or focus. But again, when you think about why not, there's no impediment, right? There's absolutely zero impediment or why there needs to be a particular type of lender to be your financing source. And especially if you're a Blackstone, who is an enormous player with lots of resources, all the connections, has worked with the entire spectrum of the market from traditional banks 
to the non-traditional lenders, they have the ability to, to create this kind of a structure that maybe not every sponsor does. To be clear, right? There are other sponsors who may be more constrained and may not have the resources to put this sort of thing together. But I agree that it's an opportunity for those who are willing and interested to put the resources behind it and take the time because this is to the point you're making, David, I think the reason the traditional banks are in these spaces is because they're in a sense viewed as more financeable or less risky than some of the other industries that don't necessarily have the same level of hard assets behind them in particular that the banks like to lend against. We haven't seen direct lenders faced with a prolonged downturn that puts pressure on the credits they've written. What do you think we'll see in that regard? So I think we're already seeing it a little bit in the sense that for the direct lenders, the belief or understanding was that if you put together a credit fund, you will be able to recycle a lot of your funds fairly quickly. Like there's a theory that maybe 30% of your deployed capital is going to come back and be recycled in any given year, just because while we've been in this lower interest rate environment, there's been a lot of refinancing. So you might close your deal in 2019 and then find a way in 2020 to have a slightly better rate or terms or the company's different or you want to do a dividend recap or leverage recap. And all of a sudden, it's less than a year and you've refinanced. And so we've been in that environment for a while where the direct lenders have been able to recycle capital. So they've been able to deploy more in a sense. They've been able to put more money to work and write bigger checks. Here in 2022, where we've gone through a period of several months of a rising interest rate environment, no one would choose to refinance. You would, of course, hold on to the cheaper debt that you have unless you've approached your maturity. So the rumor is that the amount of recycled capital has decreased significantly, which makes it harder to write bigger checks because you just don't have as much capital available. So I think that's one of the impacts that we're seeing is that instead of the bigger checks from individual lenders that we might have been used to call it in 2020, 2021, even early 2022. Now we're sort of seeing smaller checks from those lenders. So you need to go to a larger syndicate to put together your financing stack. Now, of course, we may see that change over time. But I, again, no crystal ball. And we know that the Fed has been increasing interest rates for the past several quarters. But seems like while we go through this continuing rising interest rate environment for probably the next several quarters until it starts to tick down, I think that's a trend we may continue to see where it's smaller checks from those lenders because they aren't able to redeploy the same capital as quickly. And the other piece is, of course, when you can't redeploy the capital you already have, then of course you go out and fundraise. So I think we also understand that some of those credit funds are fundraising. And as those things start to close, that will also help kind of loosen and unlock some of the financing market in the coming quarters. So so do you think the direct lending syndicate is something we'll continue to see even when we return to a more normal interest rate environment? So... it like everything, I'd put it in the spectrum of the pendulum swings one way and then the pendulum swings back the other way. You know, I think that's the only thing I've learned from having done these deals. It's interesting because around the time I started in 2008, 2009, people would talk about SPACs because there had been a prior SPAC boom. 
And then for the first 10 years of my career, I didn't work on a single SPAC deal. All of a sudden, 2020 rolls around 2021 and everyone's doing SPACs and now it's quickly receded. So my sense is, David, that yes, it will still exist, but we will see more of it now while we're in this environment. And when we move back, which eventually we will, I can't say when, but I don't think it's in 2022. I don't think it's early 2023, but at some point, we're going to move back to a lower interest rate environment to a different lending market when I think, again, the pendulum will swing back. So it's not to say that it's going to go away. It's just the prevalence is going to change based on those macroeconomic factors the same way it does with any other trend we see in deal making. That would be my sense. And then finally, what do you do to decompress from work? So like most folks, I like to try not to work 24 hours a day. It can be tough. We have a obviously a lot of client expectations. When I was more junior, well, well pre-pandemic, you know, I sort of did all of my working from the office or most of it. I spent a lot of time in the office. I just stay in the office late most nights, worked on the weekends a lot. And one of the things that I found was nice to help me create that separation from work and not work was started walking everywhere, including walking home from the office. And that's something I still sort of do. I take the train in the morning. I get a little stressed out if I'm not at my desk at the time I want to be. But even now, when I leave the office, I tend to walk to my next place, whether that's a dinner that I have or going home or doing whatever it is. And it's a very nice way to spend a few minutes, catch up with friends, talk on the phone, listen to some music, do all that. And then, of course, taking advantage of all the wonderful things the city has to offer here, including its proximity to many airports and, and travel. And so the nice thing about the pandemic is it's it's taught us that we can truly do this job from anywhere more than I even thought possible before. And having that freedom and flexibility to be able to enjoy parts of your day, even if you are working for other parts of it, has been a really, really nice thing. I tell that to you know our junior associates sometimes that if every time you get an email or have to jump on the phone while you're at dinner or on vacation, or spending the weekend in the Hamptons, you think of it as an intrusion, you'll never be able to survive in this job long term. If you can sort of flip your thinking and be like, you know what, on any day of the week, I can go to dinner, I can go to the beach for the weekend, I can fly to Florida, but I might have to work while I'm there. And just reconceptualize it to having the full flexibility to be where you want when you want, mostly, not entirely. And yes, you might work while you're there a little bit. I think it feels very freeing. And that's been my mentality. And I've been one to certainly take advantage. And through the pandemic, was very blessed, was able to spend some time in Florida and the Caribbean and Canada. And I still try to do that from time to time when I don't need to be somewhere. Saeed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. I really appreciate the opportunity. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus.